Chapter Six of Hoof and Claw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by White Symphonia. Hoof and Claw by Charles Roberts. The Eyes in the Bush. Low over the wide, pallid, almost unruffled expanse of tide, a great ghost-gray bird came flapping shoreward heavily. The shore, drowsing under the June sun, was as flat and seemingly as limitless as the sea, except to the right, where the unfenced levels of the grass foamed golden-green along the fringe of the wooded hills. Between the waveless pallor of the water and the windless warm glow of the grass was drawn a narrow ribbon of copper-red, the smooth mud-flats left naked by the tide. Just at the edge of the grass, the bleached ribs of an ancient fishing smack, born thither years ago in some tempestuous conspiracy of wind and tide, stood up nakedly from the dry red mud, and seemed to beg the leaning grass to cover them. Upon one of these gray ribs the great gray bird alighted, balancing himself unsteadily for a moment, as if in the last stage of exhaustion, and then settling to an immobility that seemed to make him a portion of the wreck itself. For the better part of an hour the gray visitor never stirred, never ruffled a feather, not even when a gorgeous black and red butterfly alighted, with softly fanning wings within a foot of him not even when a desperate mouse chased by a weasel squeaked loudly in the grass roots behind him the bees and flies kept up a soft hum the very voice of sleep among the clover blossoms scattered through the grass and a hot scent of the wild parsnip stemmed up over the levels like an unseen incense the still air quivered glassy clear along the other side of the strip of red began a soft frothy hiss as the first of the flood tide came seething back across the flats. A heavy black and yellow bumblebee with a loud inquiring boom swung in headlong circles over the wreck, more than once almost brushing the feathers of the motionless stranger. A sudden flock of sandpipers puffed down along the shore, alighted, piping mellowly on the mud just beyond the wreck, and flickered gray and white as they bobbed their stiff little tails up and down in their own feeding. But the great gray owl never moved a feather. For an hour he sat there with fast-shut eyes in the broad blaze of the sunshine, while life crept slowly back along his indomitable but exhausted nerves. And astray from the polar north, he had been blown far out to sea in a hurricane. Taking refuge on a small iceberg, he had been carried south to the berg, suddenly disintegrating, had forced him to dare the long landward flight. The last of his strength had barely sufficed him to gain the shore and the refuge of this perch upon the ribs of the ancient wreck. At last he opened his immense round yellow eyes, discs of flaming yellow glass with the pupils contracted to mere pinheads in the glare of the unshadowed light. Revolving his round, cat-like head very slowly upon his shoulders as if it were moved by clockwork, he surveyed his strange surroundings. The conspicuousness of his perch and intensity of the sunlight were distasteful to him. In his wide wings he hopped down into the interior of the wreck, which was filled half with mud and debris. Here, the side planking was all fallen away so that prying eyes could see through and through the ribs in every direction, 
there was yet a sort of seclusion, some shadow to ease his dazzled eyes. Having recovered somewhat from his numbing exhaustion, the grave visitor became conscious of the pangs of his famine. He sat motionless as before, but now with all his senses on the alert. His ears, so sensitive that he could hear innumerable and tell-tale sounds where a human ear would have perceived naught but drowsy silence, caught a chorus of rustlings, squeaks, and rushes, which told him that the neighboring depths of the grass were populous with the mouse folk and their kindred. At one point the grass fringe came so close to a wreck that its spears were thrusting in between the ribs. The gray visitor hopped over to this point and waited, hopefully. Cat at a frequented mouse hole. He had but a few moments settled in his ambush when a fat, sly-faced water rat came ambling into the wreck at the other end of the keel, nosing this way and that among the debris for sleeping beetles. Keen as were the eyes rats, they did not notice the gold-gray erect figure sitting up like a post behind the grass fringe. The visitor waited till the rat should come within reach of an erring pounce. His sinews stiffened themselves in tense readiness. Then, something like a brown wedge dropped out of the sky. There was a choked squeal, and the rat lay motionless under the talons of a mottle-brown marsh hawk, which fell instantly to tearing its victim, as if obliged to lunch in a hurry. The downy wings of the grave visitor lifted. His swoop was as soft, soundless, and effortless as if he had been but a wisp of feathers blown on a sudden puff of wind mighty talons closed on the neck and back of the feasting hawk. There was a moment's convulsive flapping of the mottled black wings beneath the overshadowing gray ones. Then the stranger set himself voraciously to the first square meal which had come his way for days. When it had finished, there was little left of either the hawk or the water rat. The visitor wiped the black sickle of his beak on a block of driftwood, glared about him, and then rose softly into the air. He wanted a darker and more secluded place than the ribs of the wreck for his siesta. Along the foot of the uplands to a right he marked a patch of swamp, sound with sedgy pools and clumps of dense bushes. Just at its edge towered a group of three immense water poplars, whose tops he decided would serve him as a post of outlook for his night hunting. For the moment, however, it was close covered, which he wanted, where he could escape the glare of the sun and sleep off his great meal. Flying low over the grass tops and ignoring the hushed rustle of unseen scurriers beneath, he winnowed down the shore to the swamp and plunged into the heart of the levious thicket. A rotted stump close to the ground offered him an inviting perch, and in half a minute he was the soundest sleeping gray owl on this side the arctic circle. Some little time after, a fussy red-winged blackbird came bustling into the thicket, perhaps to hunt for drowsy night moths asleep on the undersides of the twigs. He alighted on a branch about two feet from the gray visitor's head and stared impertinently at the spectral, motionless shape. As he stared, a pair of immense round eyes, brass-yellow and terrible, opened wide upon him. For one petrified second, he stared straight into them. Then, recovering the use of his wits, he fell backward off his branch with a protesting squeak and fluttered out from the bush that held such horrors. The grave visitor turned his head slowly, to see if there were any more such intruders upon his solitude, then tranquilly went to sleep again. It was perhaps a half-hour later when a big black mink came poking his pointed nose into the thicket. 
his malicious eyes set close together in his cruel triangular face detected at once the sleeping form of the grey visitor and glowed deeply as if all at once transformed to drops of garnet his first impulse was to hurl himself straight upon the slumberer's throat but fearless and joyous slaughterer though he was there was something in this grey shape that made him hesitate he had never before seen an owl of this ghostly colour or of even half the size his long low sinuous body gliding almost like a snake's he slipped up to within a couple of feet of the sleeper and paused irresolute to the mink's own ear keen as it was his motion was as soundless as a moving shadow but the ear of the owl is a miracle of sensitiveness in the deep of his sleep the grey visitor heard some warning of danger just as the mink was gathering his lithe muzzles for a spring a pair of immense palely blazing discs opened before his face with light so sudden so bright and so hard that he recoiled in spite of himself the grey visitor had no need of thought to tell him that the long black creature before him with narrow snarling mouth and venomous eyes was dangerous his instinct worked quicker than thought his wings spread and he rose as if lifted by a breath from beneath then he dipped instantly and struck downward with his knife-like clutching talons in the same moment the mink sprang to meet the attack lengthening his elastic body prodigiously and reaching for his adversary's throat but what the mink did not know was his undoing he did not know that the deep covering on the grey visitor's throat and breast firm close-lying feathers and a lavish padding of down was an armour too thick and resistant for even his keen teeth he got a choking mouthful of feathers he even achieved to scratch the skin beneath and draw blood then his savage jaws stretched wide in a choking screech as the steel talons closed inexorably on his throat and his slim loins and the fiery light in his brain went out in a flame of indignation amazed that it in turn should suffer the fate which it had so continually and so implacably inflicted the grey visitor was already hungry again by this time for an owl's digestion is astonishingly swift he made a good meal therefore upon the flesh of the mink though that flesh is so tough so stringy and so rank that few other flesh-eaters will dine to touch it unless in the extremity of famine then he went to sleep again for he had long arrears to make up and the hot glow of afternoon was still heavy on the reaches of sea and grass but just after sunset when the glow had faded and the first thin wave of lilac and amber came washing coolly over the wide landscape and the blossoms gave out new scents at the touch of the dew and the night hawks twanged in the pale green upper heaven then the grey visitor awoke to eager activity he floated upward from out his cover like a ghost from a pool circled over it twice and flew off to those high and lonely tree-tops which he had marked in the earlier part of the day in the nearest tree not far from the top was what looked like an immense accumulation of dead sticks to the grey visitor coming from a region so far north that there were no tall tree-tops the stark mass had no significance in his world of the arctic barrens nothing of the nature of a nest would ever be built in such an exposed position where the first icy hurricane screaming down from the pole would rip it to shreds therefore it never occurred to him that the clumsy platform of dead sticks was the nest of a pair of blue herons in fact he had no idea that any such creature as a blue heron existed
He flew noiselessly to the very top of the tree and perched there some ten or a dozen feet above the dusky platform of sticks. All the wide, glimmering twilight world beneath him was very still and quiet. Nothing seemed astir but the two or three nighthawks swooping and twanging high up in the hollow heaven, and he had no thought of hunting any such elusive quarry as nighthawks. With a view to startling some wary hiders into activity, he opened his beak and gave utterance to an earthly screeching hoot. As he did so, there was a sharp movement on the platform of sticks, and a keen, defiant eye looked up at him. He discerned instantly that the platform of sticks was a nest, and that an immense bird with an astonishing long head and bill was sitting upon it. In his own desolate north, the great gray owl knew that no creature on wings could rival him. He was the undisputed tyrant of the polar air. Even the dashing, white chocolate-mottled hawk owl flying precipitately before him. It never occurred to him that the straight-billed nester could be in any way dangerous. He dropped down upon her quite casually, as upon a shore an easy victim. But before he was in striking distance, the narrow head of the heron was drawn far back between her shoulders, and a long, straight javelin of her bill presented its point directly toward the attack. The grave visitor noted what a weapon confronted him, and paused warily. In the next instant, the snaky neck of the heron uncoiled itself, and a javelin bill darted up at him like lightning. It was a false stroke on the heron's part, for our assailant was not quite within reach, but the grave visitor took note of the deadly possibilities of that darting bill, and promptly sailed a little further out of its range. But he was only warned, not daunted. For several minutes he circled slowly just above the nest, now approaching, now retiring, while he pondered the unaccustomed problem. And all the time the heron, her head drawn back between her hunched shoulders, watched his flight unwinkingly, and kept her menacing point at guard. On the flexible coil of her neck her head pivoted perfectly, and from whichever quarter the enemy approached there was that fiery yellow point always confronting him, waiting to dart upward and meet him full in the breast. Suddenly he swooped again. Up came that darting stroke to meet him, but he did not meet it. Swerving craftily, he caught the stroke in his wing feathers and smothered it, buffeting it down. With a harsh qua-ah of despair, the heron strove to regain her position for another stroke, but already her adversary had his clutch upon her throat. A moment more, and the long neck straightened out, and the narrow head hung limply over the edge of the nest. The eggs, crushed in the struggle, oozed slowly down through the loose foundations of the platform, and the great gray owl began to tear greedily at the most lavish banquet his hunting had ever warned him. But nature is apt to deal remorselessly with the unprepared, and the gray visitor, not being at home with his surroundings, had neglected to prepare for the return of the dead mother's mate. Busy at his feasting, he failed to notice at first the flapping of heavy wings. When he did notice it, he looked up sharply, his beak dripping his round, pallid face dappled with blood. The tall cock heron was just settling upon the edge of the platform. His head was drawn back between his shoulders, behind the long yellow lance of his bill, and his eyes, hard as jewels, met those of the murderer without any expression of rage or fear or hate. They were as unchanging as the gemmed eyes of an idol. The grave visitor sprang into the air in order to give battle on more advantageous terms but this time he sprang a little too slowly the heron's head darted downward at him as if spearing a frog the stroke caught him full in the wing elbow splitting it and totally disabling him for flight with a hiss of fury he pounced at his stilt-legged antagonist striking out frantically with his terrific clutching talons but his trailing wing jerked him sideways so that he utterly missed his aim and sprawled at heron's feet
Before he could recover himself, the avenger struck again with the full drive of his powerful neck, and the stroke went home. The gray visitor dropped in a heap, with the javelin bill clean through his throat. His round yellow eyes opened and shut several times, and his beak snapped like a pair of castanets. Then he lay quite still, while the heron, standing at full height on the edge of the outraged nest, stabbed repeatedly and with slow deliberation at the unresisting mass of shadowy feathers. End of the Eyes in the Bush Recording by White Symphonia